Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From JSTOR Daily, we have a little ditty titled The Bug in the Computer Bug Story. Soon after a team of engineers discovered a moth in a machine at Harvard, the word bug became a standard part of the programmer's lexicon. Mm. Or did it? Oh, you're (laughs) toying with my emotions here. You tell me something I didn't know and now you're telling me you lied to me? I, yeah, I, I mean, I actually know this myth as a programmer. You know, this is like a foundational urban <laughs> legend. Uh-oh. So I'm about to have my childhood ruined is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just go back to 1947, where some engineers working on Harvard University's Mark II computer found there was a moth that had squeezed into one of the machine's components. So they found it, extracted it, and then someone taped it to the logbook with the caption, First actual case of a bug being found. <laughs> you can even see that logbook with moth intact at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History today. The moth is said to have inspired the scientists to speak from then on of debugging the computer, with bug originating as the later back formation from debug. But mm. bug, in this sense, actually goes back to the late 19th century, if you can believe mm. it. The supplement to the Oxford English Dictionary's fourth definition of the noun bug reads a defect or fault in a machine, plan, or the like. And to cite its source, it goes all the way back to March 11th, 1889 in the Pall Mall Gazette, which Hmm. quotes, Mr. Thomas Edison had been up the two previous nights discovering a bug in his phonograph. There was another letter written by Edison in 1878 in which he refers to bugs as such little faults and difficulties are called. So Mm. by the publication of the 1934 Webster's New International Dictionary, the third definition for the noun bug was a defect in an apparatus or its operation. So obviously, computer people adopted a term that had already been in use for more than half a century and brought it into the digital world. And the wording in the Harvard logbook, the first actual case of a bug being found itself, suggests that the computer programmers and engineers were already familiar with that usage of the term, right? But this etymological folklore is remarkably persistent. I mean, after all, you can go to the National Museum of American History and see that lab logbook, even though it's got a few caveats to it. I mean, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, Experience, I Punctured My Lung by Eating Cereal. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So this is a first-person experience from a man named Harry Long. Uh, Accidents happen to me all the time. I have broken my back, dislocated my kneecap, 
torn my groin and had appendicitis. Oy. But wow. it was a piece of cereal that gave me my biggest scare. Oh. <laughs> Do you have to reveal the actual name of the cereal so I can never eat it again? Surely not. Oh, it does. It's right oh. in this paragraph. <laughs> oh, all right. Here we go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think in this scenario, it was a bit of a user error. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> you can't so, blame the cereal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was 16 on a family holiday to Malaysia in 2015. It was just me and my dad at the buffet that morning. Dad grew up in Malaysia, so we used to visit quite often, and whenever I was there, I would look forward to a nice bowl of honey stars. They're honey-flavored, star-shaped pellets of sugary goodness. I had them every morning of the trip the same way I eat any cereal, without milk. I never got on board with the milk and cereal bandwagon because it makes everything too soggy, though soggy wouldn't have been the end of the world considering what happened next. <laughs> I was about a third of the way into an admittedly enormous bowl when suddenly <laughs> mid-mouthful, I felt an excruciating pain under my shoulder blade. It was as if someone had come up from behind and stabbed me. Hmm. Within seconds, my moaning and groaning caused heads to turn. Dad kept telling me to pull myself together because half the resort was staring at us. <laughs> but the pain wouldn't let up, so I decided to head back to my room to try to sort myself out. Once I was in my room, I spent the next 20 minutes writhing about on the floor until the pain stopped as abruptly as it had began. Huh. Over the next week, I experienced shortness of breath going up and down stairs, and when I tried to hold my breath underwater, I would feel a little bit of pain in my shoulder. I didn't see a doctor because mom told me our family had a history of adult-onset asthma, and my description of the pain sounded consistent with what had happened to a couple of my aunts when they had their first asthma attacks. Mm. So we decided to sort out my asthma once we got home. Seven days later, while we were in Singapore, Dad went to the hospital for an ear infection. I was still having spells of shortness of breath, so I tagged along. <laughs> After an x-ray, the doctor discovered a piece of dry cereal had made its way into my lung and to everyone's amazement caused a puncture. I experienced what is called a pulmonary aspiration, which is when you inhale something into your windpipe and lungs. <gasps> the excruciating pain I had initially felt was the subsequent collapse of my lung. Oh. The pain subsided only after it had totally collapsed, and oh. since that breakfast, I'd been breathing with one lung. Okay. <laughs> All right, invincible teenager. <laughs> I was rushed into emergency surgery. My surgeon did his medical degree in Melbourne. He started telling me how all Australians are bread tough. Before I knew it, he had jabbed me with a long corkscrew-shaped instrument. I immediately passed out. I woke up <laughs> half an hour later, hooked up to what looked like a tiny vacuum, which was slowly removing the excess air from my lung and reinflating it. Oh. I was stuck like that for five days. Oh. Which I had no idea would take that long. You know, I think like, oh, 30 minutes, you just pump that lung up, <laughs> yeah. put some <laughs> stitches in it, good to you go. You can inflate a whole mattress in like 30 seconds. I know. How can you not do a lung? <laughs> <laughs> So, after leaving the hospital, I was required to wait a few extra days before flying home. Then the seriousness of what had happened hit me. I had flown from Malaysia to Singapore with a collapsed <laughs> lung. Yep. The doctor said I was extremely lucky we didn't hit a certain altitude or they would have had to make an emergency landing to keep me alive. Oh. Unfortunately, I punctured the same lung last month during a netball game. What? But this time, I got it sorted out straight away. <laughs> the experience hadn't scared me too much, though. I still eat cereal without milk. Spoken <laughs> like someone who has access to single-payer healthcare, indeed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine being the guy who walks into the hospital going like, oh, yeah, no, I've collapsed a lung. I've done it before. I know what it feels like. Yeah, like I know what's going on with me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article is from Live Science, and it's called We Finally Know How Trilobites Mated Thanks to New Fossils. Hooray! Yeah. And maybe I'm the only one. I immediately thought that what this meant was we had somehow found a fossil of two trilobites caught in the act, like the infamous Pompeii guy. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not the case. What we've actually found is an exceptionally well-preserved trilobite fossil that has allowed scientists to make some new inferences based on their anatomy. So... Trilobites dominated the undersea landscape for a period of about 270 million years before going extinct about 252 million years ago at the end of the Permian period. There are more than 20,000 known species of trilobite, which means we have way more than 20,000 fossils of trilobites, right? Because it's not like we have exactly one of each species. And one of the reasons we have so many is because they were arthropods and that hard outer shell tends to preserve very well. What doesn't preserve as well are their legs. And in fact, of the 20,000 species we know about, only 38 of them have examples of fossils that include their legs. We're confident they all had legs. We just rarely get to see them. Hmm. But so one of the species we have several legged examples of is Olenoides serratus, which lived about 508 million years ago in what is now known as the Burgess Shale in the Canadian Rockies. The environment was exceptionally good for preserving Cambrian sea creatures, so we know a lot more about that specific place and time than we necessarily do elsewhere. And the irony of this is that nowadays when we find a trilobite fossil, we're just like, oh, another one of these. And we toss (laughs) it in a museum somewhere that doesn't already have five or six of them. But Sarah Lasso, a doctoral candidate of organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard University, was doing a big project on Oceratus specifically. And so she made a point of looking at every single one we had. And when she came across a relatively new specimen held in the Royal Ontario Museum, she said, quote, that is weird. That's not what those (laughs) appendages are supposed to look like at all. (laughs) So Oceratus has roughly 14 pairs of legs, but on this specimen, there were two extra pairs of legs right in the middle, where you might imagine its hips would be if it had hips. These legs were smaller, shorter, and did not have spines on them like the other legs do, which scientists believe is how Serratus would tear apart its prey. So, Lasso and her co-author looked to modern arthropods for clues about what these little legs could be for and found that the most likely answer is that they are claspers. In modern species like spiders and crabs, the males often have little extra legs just like this so that when they mount the back of the female, the little legs line up with a pair of larger spines that extend a little farther back on the female. And they can use the claspers to line themselves up and then hang on for dear life until her eggs are released. And then they can be the one who is right there in the right place to fertilize them. And they do have to hold on tight because other males are constantly trying to shove each other off. Like, it's not a nice situation. (laughs) I mean, I'm just like imagining the human equivalent is like a World War Z scenario, you know? like (laughs) Sorry, maybe that was too graphic. (laughs) So Lasso noted that another exceptionally well-preserved Oceratus specimen definitely does not have claspers. So they've inferred that that one is a female. And she says it's actually kind of a breakthrough to show that a creature from the mid-Cambrian had already evolved sexual dimorphism between males and females. Hmm. Some could argue that these little baby legs were actually just regular legs that were ripped off in a fight of some kind and were in the process of growing back. But 
Greg Edgecombe, a researcher of arthropod evolution at the Natural History Museum in London, says that the study makes a convincing case that the modified legs are real biological variation and not regeneration after being damaged. One piece of evidence they use for this, for example, is that trilobites have sometimes been found in fossil clusters, like there's a whole herd of them, but notably without any babies present. And this matches up with modern horseshoe crab behavior, where the mature horseshoe crabs will all gather together during mating season for a quick and frenzied orgy and then go their separate ways. And, of course, horseshoe crabs also have these claspers on the males and big grabbable spines lower down on the females. Hmm. So it seems pretty clear that that's, you know, that's the evolutionary precursor to what we're clearly seeing today. It feels maybe a little voyeuristic, but, you know, they're scientists. They can be adults about it. <laughs> and I guess it's good to know. You know, now we know how trilobites made it. I didn't realize how, I guess, prolific they were. Prolific and numerous. I mean, I, I right, always right. kind of figured <laughs> yeah. that, you know, the fossils are interesting, but never super expensive. So that had mm -hmm. to kind of speak to the availability. But yeah, 20,000 species seems excessive right? but i mean i oh, guess yeah. you also think like oh there's twenty thousand species of bird maybe i guess i don't know it just seems i don't <laughs> yeah but birds only have two legs and they don't mount each other for dear right, life right, you know? right yeah <laughs> next link Next, Next link. link. I don't want to alarm everybody, but Popular Mechanics is reporting that our sand depletion is on the rise, and it's a completely unregulated rise at that, which is, you know, kind of concerning. Yeah. It takes a while to make sand. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. But this stat really kind of blew my brain apart. Sand is the second most used resource after water. Huh. Oh, wow. Last week, the Kenya-based United Nations Environment Program released a new report with recommendations for avoiding a sand shortage crisis. And this summary follows a 2019 UNEP awareness report in which the organization says the sand crisis has been overlooked. And I got to be honest, this is the first time I'm hearing about a sand yeah. crisis, mm -hmm. right? Consider yeah. me having overlooked it. This is absolute <laughs> news to me. According to Pascal Peduzzi, the UNEP coordinator for the Sand Report, we need to drastically change the way we produce, build, and consume products, infrastructure, and services. You know, low bar, right? <laughs> right, easy, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's get to the issue at hand. It seems like sand is everywhere, right? It's under our feet, in the walls around us, and able to put mobile devices in your hand and pocket. Yeah, sand is responsible for some of that, too. And <laughs> as a result, the world's demand for sand has started to strip riverbeds and beaches bare. But sand does a lot more than just delight beachgoers and build cities. It's a major factor in protecting from storm surges, for mm -hmm. ensuring healthy natural habitats for a whole bunch of species, and protecting against erosion. But as we've mentioned, the sand world is completely unregulated. So the UNEP calls for a central authority to track global sand use while promoting other materials. Better yet, recycled construction and demolition material or mm -hmm. something called ore sand, which is a mining byproduct. But of course, none of them are as pure or as cheap as natural sand. Right. And believe it or not, that has led to, 
A sand underworld. Hey, hey. <gasps> the black market sand dunes. I want one. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, they're out there. Uh, according to Vince Beiser on NPR, he says they bribe cops. And if you really get in their way, they will kill you. <laughs> awesome. I mean, the nice thing is if we make the whole central band of the planet unlivable anyway... That's a lot more sand available where nothing yeah. can die because it's already dead. See? There you go. It's, we'll call it sand catraz. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com. It's titled Letters from the Loneliest Post Office in the World. Aww. A story of Antarctic adventure seekers, stamp collectors, politics, and penguins. <laughs> <laughs> So, Goodyear Island is a windswept speck of dark rock located off the northwest coast of the Arctic Peninsula. Two prefabricated wooden buildings and a metal Nissan hut, all painted black with red trim, stand near the waters of Port Lockroy. A Union Jack snaps on a flagpole and casts a shadow over dozens of squat Gentoo penguins idling around the hut. In pre-pandemic times, approximately 18,000 tourists visited the remote location annually. Each year, hundreds compete for four jobs at the post office <laughs> for a chance to live on an island the size of a football field for five months at a time without internet, cell service, or even running water. Huh. And there's some great pictures all over this article. You can see the very tiny island. It's literally just like a shack, another slightly larger building, <laughs> a building that looks like it was made out of an oil tanker, and then there's just like penguins all over the place. It's great. <laughs> to think of penguins in the Antarctic as being like squirrels around here. Like, they're just around. Yeah, you're just like, oh yeah, it's another penguin. Don't feed it, I yeah. guess. <laughs> the island has always had this mysterious draw. In the 1940s and 50s, small bands of British men formed the first generation of Port Lockroy postmasters. Alan Carroll said of his arrival in 1954, four things I recall when I eventually arrived at Base A in Port Lockroy. The outstanding scenery... Hideous piles of ashes and empty tin cans a few feet from the door, oh. and the rather odd attitude shown by the people we had come to relieve. It wasn't quite the welcome I'd anticipated, <laughs> he told an oral history interviewer. Men like Carol, who had served in the Royal Air Force, often found their way to Antarctica because they'd grown up reading about Robert Scott's journey to the South Pole in the early 1900s, and they viewed Antarctic service as a gateway to adventure. Hmm. Jim Fellows, who worked at bases in the 1950s, said he applied for the job to escape a routine 9-to-5 life. He told an oral history interviewer, I thought there must be something different to this. Typically, all the men were in their 20s, veterans of compulsory military service from every economic class, and all had volunteered to work two-year tours with the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey, the British government organization occupying Antarctica. Hmm. They dressed in a grab bag assortment of military gear, army trousers, submarine sweaters, flannel shirts, and big army boots. In 1946, GFM Hardy was the base leader at Port Lockroy, one of the five bases the UK operated in Antarctica at the time. Hardy and the other base leaders served as bureaucratic Swiss army knives, magistrate, <laughs> coroner, customs collector, receiver of wrecks, and postmaster. Postmaster was one of the most important jobs a base leader would fill in their time on the continent. Fellows recalled postmasters as an important part of enforcing almost fictitious territorial claims over the peninsula. Huh. Mail was also a lifeline for the men on the island. In addition to any personal correspondence he received, Hardy had to sort through bags of official correspondence. Here was the tedious part about running what a stamp collector from England described in 1946 as the loneliest post office in the world. <laughs> Amateur collectors wrote from across the globe. 
They were sent from big cities and small towns, and all of them asked for a one square inch stamp bearing a profile of King George VI and a map of British Antarctic territory printed in green ink. Hmm. Though these collector's items were produced in England, they were distributed only to FID's base leaders, and Hardy and his far-flung colleagues were the gatekeepers. Reading over them, one is moved deeply by those who sought not just a stamp, but a connection with the person reading the letter, whoever that might be. The most touching letters were written by people experiencing hardships. In February 1947, Glenn W. Anderson of Tacoma, Washington, wrote to Port Lockroy. He was a disabled veteran of the Second World War and unable to work, so he had taken up his hobby of stamp collecting to pass the time. In May of the same year, 63-year-old widower Paul Bunman of Schleswig-Holstein, West Germany, wrote asking for an interesting correspondence with either gentlemen or ladies anywhere in Antarctica. (laughs) The men sorting the mail had mixed reactions to their task, though they were vaguely aware of its political value. Fellows expressed some annoyance about the specificity of the collector's requests, how many stamps they wanted, whether the stamps should be franked or canceled, and how to process their money orders. Eventually, the postmasters typed up a boilerplate response telling collectors they would no longer be able to fulfill requests solely for stamps. All the letter writers would get was the stamp affixed to the return envelope, likely in poor condition after its long journey and not ideal for a collector. (laughs) Still, the letters continued arriving. Individual sovereign claims to Antarctica were effectively suspended by the Antarctic Treaty in 1959 and Port Lockroy closed in 1962, its post office now superfluous. Across the world, some lucky philatelists displayed stamps from a deserted, faraway island without mail service. I mean, it makes sense if you're a stamp collector. I really question whether some of these guys basically realized, hey, there's a market for these. We're not sending them out for free. We're going to take them back with us when we're done with our tour. Yeah. And now we've got all the mint condition Port Lockroy stamps. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, especially if it was decommissioned and we haven't heard anything about Mm -hmm. it for like 50 years. Somebody's got a stash. They're waiting. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> My favorite part of the article is where people arriving for their post were not given the friendly, warm welcome they had expected. I yeah, mean, people have yeah, been seriously. isolated for five months and now you're invading their space. No, they don't want to see you. Just as they're starting to get settled with the penguins. Right, right. right. Just inconsiderate. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, before we talk about this next article, I have a confession to make. Mm. Oftentimes, when I'm scrolling through the damn interesting curated links feed, deciding what I want to talk about for the week, a headline will come up that involves the word quantum and or mechanics. And I will just scroll right by that sucker without even (laughs) clicking on it because (laughs) I feel like there's a certain barrier to entry on those articles, right? Mm. And I'm usually not smart enough to understand them, let alone summarize them in a fun and entertaining format. But... All that's changed for right now, at least, (gasps) with this next article from New Atlas called Quantum Tunneling Could Drive Random DNA Mutations, Says New Study. Ooh! Yeah. Against my better judgment, I gave this one a chance, and it turns out I did understand it, and it's actually pretty freaking cool. So, strap (laughs) in. Before we get to the quantum part, we have to talk a little about DNA. So, if you remember back in high school biology... DNA is made up of four bases, abbreviated as A, T, G, and C, and they always bond in specific pairs, A with T and G with C. And when we talk about DNA mutations, there's a lot of different ways it can happen. Sometimes what we're talking about is an error in the chain, where it was supposed to be ATAC, but it actually ended up as ATAG or ATTAC or whatever. But sometimes the error is actually in the pairs across the double helix where you have ATAC on one side, like you're supposed to, but then the wrong thing matches up with it on the other side. And up until now, we've never really understood how that could happen. 
because the whole system is supposed to be that A can only match with T and C can only match with G. The wrong pairs simply shouldn't be able to bond with each other, but we have evidence that sometimes they do. Hmm. And one thing we do know is that the shape of the interlocking pieces, so to speak, is determined by hydrogen bonds. These bonds involve shared protons, and it was actually several decades ago that some scientists suggested that maybe the error comes from a proton accidentally ending up on the wrong side of that bond at the exact moment that the DNA strand is being pulled apart for replication. So an extra proton on one side of the zipper or a missing proton on the other, that would change the shape of the puzzle piece, if you're imagining it that way, and might allow an A to suddenly match up with a G instead. The problem was that from a physics standpoint, accidentally catching that proton on the wrong side of the bond didn't seem feasible. And the way the article explained it was to think of the proton like a ball sitting on one side of a steep hill. It's going to take a certain amount of energy for that ball to go up the hill before it can roll down the other side. And the level of energy required was far too great for it to realistically happen during DNA replication. So now we get to the quantum mechanics specifically a situation known as quantum tunneling. In this scenario, the ball is able to instantaneously tunnel through the hill and pop out on the far side without needing any of the energy that would normally be required to go over it. Hmm. And how that works is not explained, but quantum <laughs> tunneling is a well-documented phenomenon that happens in a number of different situations, including nuclear fusion. And for a long time, we thought, okay, well, scientific conditions are nice, but a living biological environment like the human body is never going to work for this. Number one, it's too warm for quantum tunneling to occur. But researchers at the University of Surrey have now demonstrated that not only is it possible for quantum tunneling to occur inside the human body, but that the warmth actually activates the protons and makes it more likely that they will jump back and forth across the hydrogen bond. And the more they jump, the more likely they are to get caught on the wrong side when the strand is separated, thus leading to the kind of mutation where a DNA base matches up with the wrong partner. As for what this means in a practical sense, the team did not give any specifics. (laughs) They just said it could have a wide-ranging impact on current models of genetic mutations. But it's quantum mechanics happening in our body and driving evolution and what more do you want? Like that, I'm ready. I'm that's ready. very cool to me. So we're saying basically that at first we thought that this quantum tunneling thing could not happen in our DNA because it was too warm. And now we're like, that was totally wrong. It's happening all the time. Yes, pretty much. Wow. And, and what else that applies to, yeah. they're not even getting into. They're just like, it is definitely possible for quantum tunneling to be happening in the human body. And if it were happening, it would completely explain this entire set of DNA mutations that we've never been able to explain. And then you get into the whole like, well, what are the odds? Like, that's always been a question of mine when they're talking about like, oh, yeah, random mutations. It's like, yeah, but why? (laughs) Why is something random in the universe? Nothing in the universe is really random when you start really digging down into it. And it turns out it's not like there's an actual (laughs) reasoning behind it, even though that reasoning makes no sense and involves protons just sort of teleporting to other sides of your DNA. I mean, at least Star Trek uses really consistent language and they just refer to like unknown anomalies instead of calling something random when it's not. You know, it just means we haven't figured it out yet. Well, and you got to admit, quantum tunneling sounds very fake. Like, if somebody on Star Trek was just like, oh, this was caused by quantum tunneling, you're like, you made that up. That's not even a good term. (laughs) Next link. 
next week. And now for something completely different, Salon has a lovely article about a perfumer's obsessive quest to recreate the fragrance of lost love. Oh, what does that smell like? Well, we don't uh, know. That's this person's job, I guess. (laughs) I can give you some notes, but I want to take you through the journey first. And we're Mm -hmm. specifically talking about perfumer Mandy Aftel, who toiled for years and those who've smelled it say she succeeded. Uh, Okay, let's start with a quote from Marcel Proust. Scents are like souls. They endure death and destruction, remembering, waiting, hoping. Mm. I had to open this up with poetry because to describe such a visceral sense with words always comes up short somehow, Mm -hmm. right? And like everybody else's attachment to different scent memories or even notes can be highly individualized. But Aftel is basically heir to a tradition, and we're talking about the roots of perfumery that go back 6,000 years to Egypt, where incense was burned to purify sacred spaces, and then later in Mesopotamia, the desire for more complex aromatics inspired some of humanity's earliest chemistry experiments. Hmm. One cuneiform tablet dating to 1200 BC names the world's first recorded chemist a female perfumer named Taputi. Hmm. And then from that era onward, precious fragrances were all over the Silk Road, reaching mass adoption in the perfumed court of King Louis XIV, <laughs> and currently comprise a $30 billion global industry that includes Aftel's Cozy Atelier in Berkeley, California. Mandy is 74 years old. In this interview, she clutches a notebook announcing, this is it! with pages documenting (laughs) seasons of struggle as the artist attempted to recreate the precise natural scent of someone she had loved and lost. And the perfume would eventually become named Memento Mori. She confessed the process mirrored the relationship itself. Torturous. (laughs) That's a little weird that it's after one particular guy. Like, imagine that guy. And he's out there going like, what do I smell like? You're like on this quest to figure out. (laughs) And I mean, she came to this in a very interesting way. So she grew up in the 1950s in Detroit. She was dyslexic and did terrible at school. She briefly got married to a local boy, became a mother, moved to Berkeley, became a weaver. She then, out of nowhere, writes an oral history of the musician Brian Jones just after his death. Hmm. And she even lived for months with the hippie folk singer Donovan (laughs) and his wife and Joshua Tree. And then, you know, later becomes a successful psychotherapist, like you do, right? Right. (laughs) Sounds like Berkeley. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and the kind of poetic, unsatisfied mind that is eventually going to find a home in perfumery. (laughs) Right, But it was two decades after becoming a psychotherapist, she decided to write a novel about a perfumer was a subject she knew nothing about. But when she got deep into that rabbit hole, her whole identity began to meld with that of the protagonist she was writing about and the vocation of crafting bespoke perfumes. Hmm. Quote, I took in the oils and all their gorgeous diversity. It was as if a mirrored sensation were occurring inside of me. I felt if I were becoming one with the oils as if they were entering me. I couldn't tell where they left off and I began. I mean, she was in it deep, right? (laughs) And it makes sense in a certain way, right? Because olfaction is our oldest evolutionary sense. Mm -hmm. Every living cell ever studied is assessing the chemicals in its environment. And as higher order animals, we are often led by the nose beyond our understanding. Research demonstrates humans can smell ovulation, reproductive compatibility, and general health, and can often change our behavior as a result. One study of males found that the scent of a woman's tears 
lowered testosterone, sexual arousal, and perceived attractiveness of female faces. Wow. <laughs> and Aftel's sense often elicits strikingly precise responses. She notes that her clients will say, oh, that's my grandmother, or oh, that's a motorcycle ride I took one time in Germany. <laughs> and <then> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's a bad memory, or you can see them kind of get lost. She said, I've had people come in for a custom perfume looking super corporate, super conventional, and they pick out the sexiest, dirtiest stuff I have. You never know who a person is inside. So she wanted to make a perfume that smelled like a body. Quote, I wanted to capture what it is to be close to somebody and lose them and know that it's never coming back. Oh, the drama. Even now, over a decade since the end of the relationship that inspired her perfume, she won't even talk about it. Mm. There's no name, not even a pronoun. She only ever refers to her former beloved as this person. So she started with the surface of the absent body. She was looking for the texture of skin, and then she kept returning to a bottle containing the essence of butter. <laughs> if you smell butter, mm. it has kind of an animal and soft, yeah. has a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of funkiness. She then adds ambergris, which is a super rare and expensive substance, which many of you may know is produced when sperm whale intestines are wounded by the beaks of a giant squid. So it's basically hmm. like stomach lining mucus to prevent those sharp cereals from puncturing your lung. Right. And then when you coat it in this goo and excrete it through the normal south pole of the body. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. All right. Good to know. But she added ambergris to give the skin its shimmery note. Then she added Turkish rose and a couple of other things. Once she got it out, the perfume premiered to savage professional reviews. Quote, oh. Not everyone loves everything I do, but there are people who love it. She claims the brokenhearted often magically gravitate towards the fragrance without knowing anything about it at all. Huh. Um, she even says someone who had just gone through a breakup came in and bought a whole bottle. Later, they wrote to say they could feel what went into the perfume and it was helping them grieve. And so she's kind of even positioning this as a kind of exposure therapy, right? Right. And it's not that weird to think of because a related approach was successfully used to treat 9-11 survivors for PTSD. A lot of the people experienced a strong scent trauma from the unique stench of Ground Zero, which was mm. described as rubbery, bitter, and sweet at the same time. And there were researchers at a chemical census center in Philadelphia who were able to use a similar synthetic odor bouquet to desensitize witnesses to their traumatic memories. So huh. I know this has gotten long, but I went to a website called Fragrantica, which is just like user-generated perfume reviews. And the most recent review says, smells like rotting butter, spoiled milk, and cow dung. I should huh. know because I grew up on a dairy farm. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, highly individualized. I still probably want to get a whiff of it, but I might not pay for the whole bottle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm curious. I don't know that I want to buy any of it. Again, I think that this person, whoever they are, it has a right to be offended that she's like, <laughs> I'm capturing the essence of you. And then all the reviews are like, it smells like rotting butter. <laughs> That's a really good point. Like, instead of being like the memory of lost love, it's more sort of like the trauma of body. Well, but like you said, if it's therapeutic, like that part makes sense to me. If it doesn't necessarily smell good, but it's like people who are grieving and have had a traumatic experience, yeah. that stuff about 9-11 survivors is fascinating to me. Right. So the idea that like that's the kind of person who needs to be smelling this, not because they want to, you know, dress themselves up and go to the ball smelling this way, <laughs> but because they want to, you know, sniff it as part of their process. 
that mm-hmm. I get. At least that makes sense to me. You know, they could probably position it by calling it therapeutic trauma juice. <laughs> <laughs> I think the poet would go with oil, but I think juice, <laughs> juice is good. <laughs> oh, I got to get that trauma juice in my veins. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from the New York Times. It's titled, Goodwill Sold a Bust for $34.99. It's an ancient Roman relic. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Laura Young was browsing through a Goodwill store in Austin, Texas in 2018. <gasps> so we missed this when <laughs> she found a bust for sale. It was resting on the floor under a table and had a yellow price tag slapped on its cheek, $34.99. <laughs> she bought it. Turns out it wasn't just another heavy stone curio suitable for plunking in the garden. It was an actual Roman bust from the late 1st century BC, which had been part of a Bavarian king's art collection from the 19th (laughs) century until it was looted during World War II. Yeah. How it got to Texas remains a mystery, but the most likely path suggests it was taken by an American soldier after the Bavarian king's villa in Germany was bombed by allied forces. This week, it went on display at the San Antonio Museum of Art next to signage acknowledging Miss Young's role in discovering it after the bus's improbable 2,000-year journey from ancient Rome to the Goodwill Boutique on Far West Boulevard. (laughs) Next year, it will be returned to the Bavarian government under an agreement with Miss Young that ended her own complex relationship with the ancient artifact, which she had kept on a credenza in her living room for the last three and a half years. She had named it Dennis Reynolds, after a Uh, character from the comedy series It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. (laughs) Like that vain and narcissistic cad, the 52-pound Marvel bust was a very difficult, cold, aloof, emotionless man that caused some problems for me, Miss Young said. (laughs) When Miss Young, a dealer of antique and vintage goods, first spotted the bust as reported by KUT in Austin and the art newspaper, she knew it was probably valuable. She said, I got it outside in the light. He had chips to the base. He had clear repairs. He looks old. I've been to museums. I've seen Roman portrait heads before. So she does a Google image search for Roman bust and realizes that looks a lot like my guy. After taking the bust home, strapped in a seatbelt in the front seat of her car, she contacted two auction houses, Bonhams and Sotheby's, both of which confirmed that her hunch was right. But subsequent research authenticated by the Bavarian government soon confirmed that Miss Young would not be able to sell the piece and fulfill the fantasy of anyone who has ever haunted Goodwill stores and yard sales for priceless treasures. At some point before 1833, the bust had been acquired by Ludwig I, a Bavarian king who displayed it in the courtyard of Pompeianum, his replica of a Roman via in Pompeii. The Pompeianum was heavily damaged by Allied bombing in 1945, and although some of its objects survived, others disappeared. The looting of art by the Nazis has gained widespread attention, but because the bust ended up in Texas, it is likely that an American service member either stole it or traded (laughs) for it after the war. Mm -hmm. This meant Miss Young isn't the rightful owner because Germany had never sold the piece or abandoned the title to it. Miss Young said Goodwill was also unable to provide answers about the bust's origins. Immediately, I was like, okay, I cannot keep him and I also cannot sell him. It was extremely bittersweet, to say the least. But I only have control over what I can control, and art theft, looting during a war, is a war crime. I can't be party to it. So, Miss Young struck an agreement to have the bus shipped back to Bavaria. In exchange, she will receive only a small finder's fee, uh, which her lawyer declined to disclose. 
So she might have done okay. <laughs> yeah, I might have been all right. The bust is believed to portray either a son of Pompey the Great, who was defeated in battle by Julius Caesar, or Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus, a Roman commander whose forces once occupied German territory. The San Antonio Museum of Art will display the bust until May 2023, which was important to Miss Young. She said, he's been hidden for 70 to 80 years. I think he deserves some attention, and I think he deserves some attention in Texas. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Last month, she handed over the bust to the museum, leaving her with only a 3D printed model of the piece that she keeps in her living room. Miss Young says, it's hard because this is probably going to be the coolest thing I ever find and it's over. But there's always something else to find. Yeah, she's got a model of it. She can still look at him fondly and go, oh, you're toxic, but I'm into you anyway. Like- <laughs> <laughs> and she's got an amazing story forever now. Yeah. So, yeah. Man, I got to go to the Goodwill again sometime soon. Who boy. <laughs> yeah. Nothing but disappointment awaits <sighs> you. You're not going to be able to sell anything. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Tale of the Domesticated Horse, How a Prominent Mexican Scientist Wound Up a Spy for Russia, and The Alien Invasion of Antarctica is Only Just Beginning. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, maybe buy us a cup of coffee, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.